Hello and welcome back to another exciting episode of Science Snacks. It's me, your science liaison with a face designed for podcasting, Eric. Today we're talking about some papers that uh, came out, a series of papers that I'll be going through about Tetris. But before we get into that, let's talk about video games. Um, I myself am a huge fan of video games. I play a, a large variety. We have another episode more on like video games, but for me, I've had a handful of difficult times in my life that video games have found a, a nice home for. In fact, like my junior year of college, I found to be a very difficult time and you know really struggled with, I think for me, kind of the limits of like what I could kind of naturally intellectually do and I actually had to learn to study for the first time in my life and you know actually apply myself academically and and learned what it meant to you know take notes and things like I don't know in high school I was kind of a slouch and just kind of managed to get through but in in college I kind of hit the point where no longer can you just you know kind of find your way without trying and video games, after one of my particularly difficult semesters, was like a nice safe haven for me. And in other parts of my life, like, you know, having experienced traumatic events, one of which I'll, I'll talk about, is, uh, you know, a car wreck that I had where my car was completely totaled. And I was out driving in the uh, in snow and ice and... Well, another person and I collided, and it was no one's fault. It was just kind of the, the nature of the roads themselves. And my car was totaled. Their car was totaled. Uh, my airbag went off. My head went forward and hit the, uh, the airbag. And, you know, I, I managed to get out. I was, I was fine. And then I was talking to them, and the woman's yelling at me, and I'm, like, trying to dig her child out of broken glass, and she's, like, not worried about her kid in broken eye. It was, it was a lot to go through, and for a while made me feel like, you know, I didn't want to drive, that I didn't want to be in a car. I, I didn't want to, you know, at the time do my job that required me to to be in a car. Uh, I was so scared of driving in, you know, uh, bad weather. And for a long period of time, I would feel my face kind of like dip forward as I, as I had flashbacks to the moment right when I hit the airbag. And for me, that was a pretty rough period of time as I tried to recover my ability to drive and feel safe while driving. And I had lost my first car, and I bought a car off Craigslist from a guy that didn't work out. There were a lot of problems associated with that time, and I played video games all throughout it as, for me, something of like an escape or something of like a distraction from the pains and challenges. You know, I may be struggling in my, my real life, but in this game, I'm Geralt of Rivia, about to hunt down a monster. And... Well, there's this idea that was posed um, about some research that came out. And the idea was that Tetris can be used for trauma. And there was a claim that Tetris is literally a first aid kit for trauma that was made on October of 2021. And this idea got a lot of replies, got a lot of feedback. And so... 
What I want to look at is a handful of papers and what the science says. And we're going into this with an open mind and with no real agenda. Um, because it would be great if Tetris is, as the person says, literally a trauma first aid kit. But also, again, like if let's see what the science has to say. Because if that's not true, well, then we're spreading misinformation. And we have a very hard uh, thing against misinformation. Uh, so the original study that this is based off of is a 2015 study in psychological science by Wower. I, I don't know how to pronounce their name. W-O-E-H-R. Uh, and it's called Computer Gameplay Reduces Intrusive Memories of Experimental Trauma through or via reconciliation update mechanism. So they're making a claim that playing a game reduces intrusive memories of trauma. And then they're saying, also, we're going to push uh, what we think is the mechanism for that. Um, and so that sounds pretty, like, legit, right? Well, let's, let's look at what the study actually did. Uh, this was for 52 healthy college students. The students were uh, shown a 12-minute film that supposedly mimics being a witness to a traumatic situation. So they show them like a really rough film. Uh, maybe, I don't know, uh, I, I knew somebody that was real scared of the Moana film. <laughs> so maybe they showed him Moana. I, or, or maybe, I don't know, the uh, Human Centipede or one of these other like famous kind of gory, gross films, right? Uh, the next day, the researchers reminded half the college students about the movie and had them play Tetris. The other half were not reminded of the movie and also did not play Tetris. So for the next seven days, the students wrote down whenever they had intrusive memories, right? So the results were that if you played Tetris, they had fewer intrusive memories of the scary movie over the following week. So, and they have graphs associated with this. So they had like the no task group or the reactivation plus Tetris group, um, which is interesting because let's, uh, let's look at that for a second. We have two things to address. 52 healthy college students split into two groups. So that's 26 people per group, right? And so they're saying the no task is the control group and the reactivation plus Tetris group is the non-control group, that there are independent variable. But why are they both reminding the people of the movie and also having them play Tetris? Seems like you're doing two things there. Maybe it's that by reminding them <laughs> of the movie, you're giving them more intrusive memories uh, or less intrusive memories. Like, oh, yeah, you know, and then it becomes old hat after a while. Uh, I, I don't know, but then you're also having them play Tetris. It seems like you're changing two things that the no-task control group is doing. Um, and so there's also a handful of other things. So what does, like, intrusive memory really mean? And, you know, are they just, you know, occasionally remembering a scene from the movie and writing down that in their diary? Um, or, you know, ultimately we have here is people who didn't really experience trauma. They watched a, a scary movie. They watched the ring <laughs> and they were like, uh, yeah, you know, I remember a thing from the movie sometimes. And there's very little difference in the, the, you know, displays of the graph 
versus those who, you know, didn't watch the movie. And even in the graph, it shows, like, there's statistically here, like, I would say this is no significant difference. But without doing the math, like, these, these graphs look the same. <laughs> but that's just one of the studies, right? So there's another study. Um, there's an NPR piece, and that was about a 2017 study, where they were writing that Tetris reduced intrusive memories by 62% after a car crash, which is why I told you the car crash story. On the surface, the study seems pretty more, more convincing. They started with 71 participants, and in this study, they actually had experienced the trauma of the car wreck, right? And since they were given this intervention, they were, uh, they, they were given it after uh, their emu- emergency room uh, department visit after the car crash. So we know these people have actually experienced trauma. That's one up on this study. The intervention was kind of similar to the previous study. The participants were split into two groups, one of which was reminded of their trauma and then told to play Tetris. The other group was not. The participants then, they had a diary, and as they report, the group that played Tetris experienced, on average, 62% fewer intrusive memories over the course of the next week. But again, why are they reminding them of the trauma? Hey, Eric, you remember that time... (laughs) that you had to dig a kid out of glass. And also, here's a video. Play a game. Play a game for me right now. Like, first of all, that's very rude. Um, But then, at one month, there was no difference between the groups. The effects doesn't last, even in their own study. And you might say, well, that's okay. At least, you know, maybe you have to play Tetris longer to have a longer effect. Um... But that's not really what we care about. The idea is that, like, by playing Tetris soon after a traumatic event, it somehow stops the trauma from being a long-term thing or something that's that you know affects you in in any meaningful way. Um, and that that was the original claim. Like, it's a first aid trauma kit for for trauma, right? Uh, but instead, it seems like playing video games might be helpful at most in the short term but while their thing shows that there's a significant effect for intrusive memories other aspects of trauma weren't affected by playing tetris for example the research tested avoidance which i talked about with like oh man i don't want to get in my car i don't want to go someplace especially if it's it's you know bad weather out uh hyper arousal also called hyper vigilance you know where you feel like you know uh the only way to be safe is to be aware of everything constantly and it really wears people down i know individuals that have really had this from from trauma that they've experienced and this hyper vigilance or hyper arousal wears you down emotionally and mentally and physically and it's something that can really take away from your overall life experience and then they were talking about post-traumatic distress anxiety depression it doesn't help with any of those things so you're just measuring intrusive memories and they're saying well, at one week and one month there's no difference between the group for anything beyond intrusive memories Uh, That is, playing Tetris doesn't actually help on the distress-related outcome. So, for me, I talked about, like, specific memories. So the memories of the woman yelling at me, 
the memories of the airbag hitting me in the face, the memories of the you know resulting outcome of having to buy a, a Craigslist car that cost me like three thousand dollars in a month just to keep it up and running, like, uh, and or the the thing of digging the child out of broken glass. Those are just a handful of memories. So if I were to talk about like how many intrusive memories I have from that, I would say four. Four pretty rough memories from it that are, are very difficult to, to you know, <laughs> deal with back in the day, and now I can talk about more, more freely and, and openly. Uh, but this talks about like the number of intrusive memories, not the strength of the intrusive memories. That's the part that really gets me. I can have one immensely strong intrusive memory. But if I have it, you know, once a day, they'll say that this is, <laughs> they'll measure that differently than someone who remembers a handful of them. So this strength of the memory isn't even being measured here. Um, there's a 2017 article that comes in the same journal that critiques this study, um, especially because the uh, group that was writing this this study in 2017, um, they use like really hyperbolic language, things like cognitive therapeutic vaccine or a rabies vaccine after a dog bite, things like that. Um, the authors kind of kind of poo pooed on it. <laughs> They said that this is, like, uh, a pretty bad study overall. Um, and that brings us to one that I would like to talk about today, which is Tetris and word games lead to fewer intrusive memories when applied several days after analog trauma. So in this one, they're saying, oh, hey, we have this body of research that says that, like, Hey, we would all agree, intrusive trauma memories are a key symptom of PTSD, so disrupting their reoccurrence is important, right? Intrusion development was hindered by visuospatial interventions administered up to 24 hours after analog trauma. They're citing old research. So they're saying like, oh, this is you know what they've shown in the past, and we don't really know how it occurs. And again, this is from a, a study from uh, the European Journal of Psychotraumatology, uh, which was released in 2017. Um, and the, the lead uh, person on this is Muriel A. Hagenars. I'm known for my wonderful pronunciation of names. Um, so they wanted to see whether like vis visual spatial tasks like Tetris led to fewer intrusions compared to uh, reactivation only group, uh, so a control group, or if we have them play word games, you know, does that do better? Does that do worse? Because you know, it's a it's a visuospatial and verbal component, right? Well, so they had 54 participants. That, oh, oh, I see you already have a red flag on the play. Uh, so, yeah, 54 participants randomly assigned to reactivation and Tetris, reactivation word games, or reactivation only, no task. So at least here they're changing only one variable. But if we have 54 participants split three ways. <laughs> Those are very small groups, right? Um, they had what them watch an adversive film, similar to the one study, and then record their intrusive memories on the film in their diary. On day four, the memory was reactivated. They were reminded of it, after which participants played Tetris, word games, or had no task for 10 minutes. 
then they kept a second diary and these were compared so you know if i look at the first diary look at the second diary uh maybe i would see a difference right and so they said oh hey we had the tetris and the word people resulted in relatively fewer intrusions on the last day of the diary compared to the first day thus both were effective when applied after analog trauma again four days it's been four days and it's only again for number of intrusive memories so fewer intrusions from the last day right and then here we have they're trying to make a claim of whether or not word based games or tetris is stronger but they say that like you know uh, statistically insignificant right but they want to say like uh, but the evidence was weak because they still want to make a claim. It's a it's a trick that they'll do inside of uh, papers is be like, evidence was weak, but it appeared to result in fewer intrusions. That's statistically insignificant between the, the two. And also their uh, numbers of people are really small. Um, applying a task four days after the trauma film, they conclude, was effective. Uh, the modality versus the working memory load issue is kind of inconclusive, right? So what they're saying here is like they they don't really know why it works, but for sure it works up to four days with a small sample size. <laughs> so isn't that kind of wouldn't you say that's pretty bad? Like that's not that doesn't it seems like that's a very small number of people. It seems like you know. Um, you're making big claims with a small sample size and you're only really interested in number of individual or number of individual intrusions right well there was another study by Wower, the person who and the group that originally um made these claims. They found that intrusive memories decreased by 64% on average and 80% of the patients improved. Wow. That's astounding, right? I listen, I want that to be true. I want there to be uh, a way with which we can help individuals with trauma. That's as easy as having a downloaded Tetris game on your phone. So there's a positive about this study. It included people who actually had been hospitalized for complex PTSD. That's very good and very important for understanding whether this works. But it had only 20 participants, no control group, as all of the participants were given the intervention, and everyone was already undergoing intensive inpatient treatment, including an individual and group, and group therapy approach for PTSD. So the results could have been due to the fact that they were receiving five to 10 weeks of intensive therapy. So that's interesting, right? So like I've known a lot of people who, you know, um, have worked in hospitals and they'll talk about like families who are experiencing a loved one who goes through cancer or some other severe disease, right? And the family prays which is okay. It's, it is wonderful to have a religion. And what a dear friend of mine said was that he's been working in it for years and years now and said there was no difference between the families that pray and those that don't. It is completely dependent on the, the individual's condition and luck. 
and that it's not really... So let's say that someone gets better, right, while in the hospital, while being treated for a disease. Would you say, ah, our praying helped someone get better? Or whatever deity we were praying to helped that person get better? Or would you say that it was the medicines that they were being given? Well, in the world of science, statistical reproducibility is a huge factor. So if we could statistically reproduce um, individuals, you know, being cured from one mechanism or another, we need to do that, to show that. So if we, how do we go about <laughs> showing that if we don't have a control group, someone who is either not being prayed for or, you know, not receiving the, the treatment? So um, the sad fact is to do this particular study, they would have to, uh, you know, have a group, maybe 50% of, of the people who were not given Tetris or some other, you know, a game or whatever to play to recover, right? And instead of just given the therapy. And then we could do a side-by-side -side of, it was it the therapy or was it Tetris? Or if we add Tetris into therapy, do we improve the odds? And if not, well, then what's the point of Tetris, right? So when we're saying it's literally a trauma first aid kit, you know, it's really a trauma first aid kit receiving individual and group therapy. That's what we can say is a trauma first aid kit. In one of the studies that recently came out, um, this is a study from 2020. They replicated the first study. Um, 86 quote-unquote healthy volunteers watched another film, a spooky, scary horror film, and they kept a diary of intrusive memories. The results were similar to what they had in study one, but they tried to at least replicate the results, right? So this is more people, okay? So that's something, right? And then they're replicating the results, okay? But in the first study, if you recall, they were doing... Two things, reminding the people and also uh, giving them Tetris. <laughs> so maybe we, we can't, the problem is you have to isolate variables. If you're doing two things different, then you're not isolating variables properly. So let's recap. Uh, so far, we have a handful of studies, all of which have claimed that if you play Tetris directly after experiencing trauma, right, you should have less intrusive memories. That doesn't say anything about aversions or, you know, um, some, some types of like hypervigilance or like, you know, having all these other symptoms of PTSD, but at least you'll have intrusive memories to a lesser of a degree, right? Um, and all of these studies have a handful of problems with small sample size and, you know, poor variable isolation. Um, and so I'm used to studies because <laughs> of my field um, that are literally like thousands and thousands of, of samples, right? So uh, there's, for example, uh, 
autism being caused by the Tdap vaccine. There's no evidence whatsoever that that is the case. And in fact, when doing epidemiological studies, comparing the number of individuals that have autism in comparison with those that receive the Tdap vaccine, side-by-side studies that have 95,000 participants, 100,000 more participants. Um, I believe the study is slowly built up to like half a million or more participants. Um, There's still no no shown correlation. And those meta-analysis studies get very big numbers. But instead, we have a study from 2020, which included 10 participants (laughs) who had experienced trauma. They listened to audio that instructed them to tap their fingers while remembering the traumatic event. Three of the ten participants no longer met the criteria for PTSD after the intervention. But, where's our control group? <laughs> where's And this is ten people! And there's no way to account for your placebo effect. Um... If you take this seriously, the study would broaden the intervention from playing video games to just doing almost any activity. If you distract yourself with activities, then you can avoid some of the pain and suffering of trauma. Which gets back to me playing The Witcher in 2014. Uh, you know, my junior, finishing up my junior year of, of college. And I just... Uh, just distracted myself. Is that better? Is that worse? A study from 2021 failed to replicate even the findings of the first study. As usual, the participants had uh, 200 people this time watch the trauma film and keep an intrusive diary. Four groups, three groups that played Tetris at different points in the exercise, and one control group that did not play the game. The research found no effect in any of the groups. The researchers write there was no significant difference in the number of intrusive memories between the four groups post-intervention. And lastly, a group from 2020. Uh, They used a slightly different task, and they also failed to replicate the findings. For here, there were 77 people with actual traumatic experiences who arrived in a trauma center just hours after the trauma. Half of them played a semi-immersive VR game, and the other did not. The researchers found no effect on PTSD symptoms. The researchers write, no significant difference between the intervention and control groups were found regarding PTSD symptoms uh, at two weeks and six months following the traumatic event. So when we say this is literally a trauma first aid kit, where's the evidence? The problem is that things like this sell, right? Like, it is a cool post to make on, on Twitter. Uh, it trends. It's wonderful. And, you know, uh, we all want it to work. We want it to be true. But the sad fact is that, like, shortcuts like this aren't going to resolve the problem. Or they aren't going to get to the, the heart of the problem. They aren't going to hit those, those fancy one-liners, you know, oh, it's literally a first-aid trauma kit. It's not, right? Like, we all can recognize that, like, that's not... And the easy route is never the real route. Anything worth having is probably going to come difficult. And those come through actually getting therapy and help dealing with your trauma. 
whether that's group therapy, just talking to someone that you love and care about and trust, or getting individual therapy. I think that things like this trend for a handful of reasons. And one that is relevant to the purpose of this podcast is in talking about why bad data exists. So there's a handful of reasons. A lot of people want to publish. A lot of people want to get published. There's a lot of esteem to it. There's a lot of, like, uh, it's a good resume builder. I have my publications on my resume. Like, it's wonderful. You can talk about it. You can say, ah, you know, I did this research. Here was the conclusions we came to. And it's great. But there is a body of what's called predatory publishers out there who are happy to post whatever garbage you make. Not you personally, listener. Obviously, you're one of the smarter ones out there. (laughs) But, like, they've posted, you know, joke uh, scientific literature before, or like there's research about somebody who produced like star Wars data and they posted that pretending that the force was real and midochlorians or whatever are, are real things. That's so the problem is that these people, uh, get their money from you or whoever is your grant sponsor and you'll pay them and they'll post it to their website and they get increased traffic. They get your money and they'll happily post it. And it costs money to have peer review, but peer review is so important for science. So how it should work is you produce data in science. You write a paper and then you send it to a publisher and that publisher has an editorial department. And that editorial department is full of a handful of people who are considered, quote unquote, your peers, uh, your scientific peers who will read through the paper and they'll ask the same questions I do. How do we know that this is statistically significant? Where's your, where's your like control group? Where's your variable isolation? Where's your, uh, your in value or number of sample size? Like if you're only working with 10 people, no control group, no variable isolation. Well, I have bad news for you. (laughs) You're not going to be published, but there's no money in that. It's much more lucrative to take someone's money and post whatever garbage they shared without, you know, any real peer review process. And that takes time, right? It takes time to get people to peer review. You have to pay people to peer review. And in any reputable journal, you would get peer review. The problem here is in money, like, like with most things, it's that these websites will have, you know, very fancy looking, uh, well, graphically designed, uh, front pages and they'll take your money happily and post whatever maybe maybe they'll just take your money and they're they're true scammers but in some cases they'll post whatever you have and so that's why people can always say like oh you can find scientific data to support anything it's because there's this cloud that is obscuring the true field of science and that science needs to be fixed it needs to be the case that Predatory publishers aren't out there, and one of the ways we we try to do that is by having what we call reputable journals, right? These journals that you know are known for producing very good, valid data, but even they aren't infallible. Especially during the pandemic, there were a handful of papers that came out of you know very reputable places doing kind of questionable science because things were on lockdown. 
and there wasn't as much available as far as reagents and people and you know people in the lab (laughs) and so there was a lot of like bad data that came out during that time not necessarily about the the pandemic but about other things like how do you get a group of people to do a study like this when we're on lockdown you can't how do you post in journals about psychological work you can't get a hold of people for psychological studies. It's also one of those things if you are a person like Woer who's trying to make claims and you know establish an entirely new thing of, of like this is something brand new in the field and things like that. You, you are pushing the limits, the new limits of knowledge. We've talked before about the 2016 power couple that did work in autophagy and this group that for 40 years pushed our level of knowledge of why the cell and how the cell breaks down parts of itself. How things like, you know, uh, catabolism happens inside of the body. And, you know, when when you're getting rid of uh, broken down parts of your cells, why that occurs, they literally push the field in a new and, and harsh way. And they did very good work. But the problem is in you know, everyone wants that. Like in science, everyone wants to be that new pusher of knowledge. I want to be that. That sounds awesome. That also uh, sounds like couple goals to be uh, someone who's pushing the new field. But when everyone wants to do that, so then comes, you know, the potential for exploitation. So we have this problem of predatory publishing of people who, you know, are wanting to, to push their work or to, to have that fame associated with it, to, to be able to brag, put it on their uh, resume or maybe get their residency or PhD with it. You know, you work so hard for years and years and your data comes out bad. <laughs> you still want to publish something, but, you know, there's problems with your data. So when we're pushing science through that has a problematic nature to it in any of these forms that I've listed, that's where we get the bad data that we can kind of see in these fields. And I think for this one in particular, um, this was a matter of a scientist with um, poor science habits, uh, no control groups, uh, small studies, Um, poor variable isolation who managed to get science through that should not have and science that in larger studies would fail to be replicated. I would love for it to be the case that to play video games could be your trauma first aid kit. It makes a lot of sense for me for, you know, how I found video games have played a part in my life how I've tried to get others to play video games in my life. I think for me, playing cooperative games with others is cathartic. It's fun. It's something that like really makes my heart feel good. Playing games with friends is something I think is super beneficial to everyone. But whether or not in the first few hours, days, weeks after trauma, that that will stop intrusive memories. Well, the data disagrees with that. And whether it stops PTSD, well, the data disagrees with that too. So, in conclusion, it doesn't appear 
like Tetris is really a trauma first aid kit, but instead that there's some problems with the science being pushed through and how it gets tabloided, how it gets exploited, how uh, one liner can become a quick tweet that gets, you know, retweeted, uh, you know, thousands of times. I have to make my titles here a bit clickbaity. I have to like pick the funniest thing in order to get people to, you know, click on these episodes. There's something inherently human about that not wrong just something that can be exploited for uh, worse purpose by someone with maybe even good intentions hoping that this data is true but sadly the evidence isn't there yet but hey that's enough for me thanks for listening and as always don't forget your safety glasses